Hello? Okay. I got the introductions wrong before, but it's time. Please welcome Vivian and Rory to the stage. Vivian, this is Rory, and we're going to be doing some um, acoustic songs for you tonight. I hope you enjoy it. So the first one we're going to do is um, a cover of a song that you might know. Um, it's a song I wrote in part. 
some bits on the tube, some bits observing random people. But um, I hope you enjoy this one too. <laughs> Just testing the mic then. <laughs> Thank you very much, Vivian and Rory. Yeah. Okay, next up we have Tamim Sadikali. Um, he's got a debut novel, Dear Infidel, in a story about love, hate, longing, and sexual dysfunction, all sifted through the war on terror. He reviews fiction and non-fiction for Book Munch and others and dabbles with the shorter form. He likes to start fires on Twitter. Dear Infidel will be showcased in the People's Book Prize 2015-2016 Autumn Collection. Please welcome to the stage, Tamim Sadikali. Oh yeah, hi everyone. Um, yeah, so I'm going to read, um, yep, as Dot said, um, from my novel, Dear Infidel. Um, I'm gonna read extracts from the prologue, um, which introduces, sets the scene obviously, and um, introduces the um, main characters. And, I think I'll take my glasses off. I'd prefer you all a, a bit out of focus. So, um, <laughs> uh, um, yep. Ah, right. It's better? Yeah. Okay, cool. Imtiaz. It's the lows that you've got to watch out for, and the highs. The tedium of every day is a danger too. Sometimes I need to shut it all out and cut loose, escape. But whilst you reach for a bottle, I reach for something else. Others take things in their stride, 
the background noise having dulled their senses. But my senses remain heightened and I have no answer. Touch, taste, sight, smell and sound. I receive the same data as you, but I process things differently. They say a blind man's hearing is more acute. I guess the same principle applies. When I was a boy, I loved the Incredible Hulk. I used to wait for the terror of the metamorphosis, sneaking peeks at the TV from the safety of my dad's lap. Sure, the growling green monster throwing men and cars around was damn cool, but looking back, the real power lay in the rising tension of the quiet man seeking a simple life, but then getting disturbed. I am the Incredible Hulk. I am the wilderness locked in a cage. I am become death. Salman. Most people's growing pains are confined to their teenage years, stretching at most until their early 20s. First comes the physical stuff, but alongside arrives competition, and with it, the duty to compete. Subtle and not-so-subtle forces compel you to get in the ring, but unless you're a prize fighter, you do not enter with relish. But there's no going back. You know next to nothing but this one thing you are sure of. The protection of childhood has gone for good. You must raise your fists and fight, as much for your own safety as well as to beat on others. And thus, one begins clamouring for a seat at life's top tables. And just like in any other race, it's the initial exchanges that count. If you mess up your school days, you'll not get into the right university or onto the right course, and it'll be uphill from there. Salman recalls some graffiti scribbled underneath a toilet roll dispenser in his university's library. Sociology degrees, please take one. All these years later, and it still brought a smile to his face, but it held more than a grain of truth. He had a 2-2 in accounting and finance from a new uni slash old poly, and it was worth shit. Adam. It was 10.01pm, and most commuters were long since home. But for Adam and a few other weary souls, the working day was only just done. His train had been due at 9.52, but it hadn't even been announced. Waiting, waiting. He was near the top end of the concourse, just in from the Bodicea pub, when he noticed a man stagger out, covered in blue. He was sporting a, a blue shirt, a blue hat, a spherical beetroot face, and he held a blue flag with intent. He was a Chelsea fan. Out of the pub he came, and into the Burger King next door he went, home from home. Adam looked around. No one seemed to have noticed the scarlet and blue clown, save for a young girl holding her mother's hand. He waited expectantly, and the encore duly came. Out of the BK hobbled Bozo, before plonking himself into one of the plastic seats outside. Again, he checked his surroundings. Still only he and the little girl were appreciating this artist at work. No matter, the show went on. Bozo sat and ate, burgers, chips and shake. It was clearly a struggle though, as successive chews were being teased out as if he were masticating glue. And his eyes would regularly shut before he'd spring back scowling, occasionally grabbing his unfurled flag for those who ventured too close. But all on his own, Bozo could only dig deep and stay low. But then, suddenly, salvation. The cavalry arrived. Seven, eight, nine of his comrades poured out of the Bodicea, all sporting the same beetroot and blue, the colours of the King's Road. Bozo locked with each of his brothers in arms, relieved for friendly company. Emboldened, he walked in front of his men and, unfurling his flag, sounded the battle cry like the buglers of old. Who the fucking, who the fucking, who the fucking hell are you? 
Who the fucking hell are you? William Williams's 18th century devotional capturing the march of the Israelites to the promised land had found a new 21st century home. For the Chelsea fans were in the promised land too. They just won a football match. Adam turned back to Bozo, whose expression morphed from glory to hate, and with good reason. Only him and his chums were allowed to enjoy this victory, and he'd make sure those fucking suits knew it. But once on a train, Adam knew those very same suits would prefer Bozo's company to his own brown-skinned self. Whether Bozo be quietly dribbling spittle onto his jeans, or treating everyone to a verse from no surrender to the IRA, there was no way he'd win that beauty contest. But it wasn't always thus. Things had changed. That one day, 9-11, it had been seriously inconvenient. But he understood. He couldn't hate them back, the British. God knows he'd tried. Perhaps it was now time, time to jump ship, bail out, start again. A new life, him and Nuznim. He wondered what she'd think of it. The British fleeing the likes of him tended to go to Australia, and so it made sense for him to head in the opposite direction, Dubai. The East served up on a Western plate. Perfect. He'd talk to her. She'd see the sense in it. It was time they refreshed their vision. Thank you. Thank you, Tamim. Okay, next up we have Dominic Rentiens, who's been a professional dancer, street entertainer, film technician, and cameraman. Recently, he's been working as a teacher of screenwriting and film editing in both England and Australia. In 1999, he brought these experiences to his writing in a project made possible by digital technology and created Covent Garden Films, Inside, Outside Lydia's Head, My Stratford Friend is the first book of a quartet covering the entire life of the Bard inspired by his experiences in the world of dramatic theatre. Please welcome to the stage, Dominic Rentiens. Love, betrayal, jealousy, tyranny, fear, anger, Sorrow, trust, and joy. Surrounding us, these things all hang in the ether. At all times, a moment from ignition. They will fill a woman's breasts with passion's milk. They will drive life from her womb. They will create families. They will join distant hearts but they will also rip a soul in two. Set man against man, father against son, mother against daughter. They will burn cities, decapitate monarchs, and destroy nations. They will not be held captive, directed, ordered, bought, or sold. They are multifaceted beasts with no master, yet, one man could reduce them to a single facet. Words on a piece of paper. Mr. William Shakespeare. He was my friend. My name is Tom. I am Tom Wickham of Stratford-upon-the-Avon. I was born on the same day as he. To the family maid, she died. I shared his mother's breast. Frater in lactatus, brothers in milk. We grew, I a horseman, he a poet. And as my life unfolded, I watched this gentle man take mastery of the simple word and with it light the night sky with a star that will never fade. We shared food, wine, 
horse, roof and bed, I was closer to him than his precious Anne. So read these stories of my Stratford friend. And among those pages of love, blood and sorrow, you will find a glorious child, a beautiful boy and a passionate man of whom you quote every single day of your lives. Because if you bid me good riddance and get me gone, if your wish is father to the thought, if you are in a pickle, you have just quoted my friend. <laughs> That's a little monologue about, I wrote about the main character of my book, which now I realize you understand maybe what it's about. So rather than read something prepared, what I want to do is someone give me a number between one and 375, and I'll read that page from my book. Somebody said eight. Somebody belted out eight. Okay. Eight. Page eight. It's quite nerve-wracking, that, because you don't really know what you're going to get. From my earliest days, I spent more time on a horse than on the ground. Father and Grace often placed me on a horse whilst going about their daily duties. If the back of a horse seems a bit of a precarious place to put a small baby, this was no ordinary horse. This was Heaven's Gate. A six-year-old Persian war horse, originally from the stable of Lord Lucy, not only had Heaven's Gate been his personal mount for heavy armour, but a formidable challenger in the peacetime war sport of jousting, or tilting as it was more commonly known. At 18 hands, Heaven's Gate had a back as wide as a banqueting table with withers like the buttress of a great abbey. He was as placid as a fireside dog and as strong as Atlas himself. He had been retired by his lordship due to his ill health. Locally, this was correctly known to be his lordship's fear of tilting. My father bought Heaven's Gate on behalf of the livery for the purpose of rescuing carts stuck in the mud. He never failed, and the charge was a monstrous two shillings, payable in advance. However much the cart owner complained, my father always pointed out it was a cheaper price to pay than a spoiled load. Most mornings I lay in the basket on the back of Heaven's Gate. If a horse whinnied, kicked or reared in the yard, Heaven's Gate would turn his massive head and catch my eye, as if to say... You're safe with me. Since I had no mother, and Heaven's Gate was more often than not my baby maid, my affinity for Equus arrived as naturally as song to a thrush. The central aspect of Stratford life was Sunday and the accompanying religious observations. Attendance of the Protestant Church of England was, by crown and state, required of all of us. In Stratford, the old faith of Rome still had some loyalty, and many only played lip service to the Crown's religious decrees. My late mother had been of the old faith, but my father cared for neither. Since his employer was a strict observer of state edicts, there was no question of him, my aunt, or me going down any other direction than with the political flow. Without question, we observed the new mass and took communion. The Shakespeare's, on the other hand, came from solid old faith families, and they, though they did refuse communion, they found it hard to sidestep attendance. Um, would anyone like a, another page later on in their life, further on? What? 214, I like the precision in these numbers. 214. Um, this is, um, the boys are now 17 and they're working for, uh, the De Horton family up at Horton Towers near, um, Preston. And Tom's gone up there to do some horsework for them while Will is actually teaching the children of the family, um, literature and poetry and play acting. And there's a lot of stuff goes on while they're here at that time. 
you know, 17. Anyway, I don't even know what I'm going to read. Anyway, here we go. I nodded knowingly, appreciating her frankness. Sorry, I'll start again. I nodded knowingly, appreciating her frankness, and made my way along the passage to find Will. The door of the library was ajar, and a flickering light emanated from the room. Surrounded by a dozen or so bookwell, books, inkwells, and sheets of paper, and a spluttering candle, there at a table slept my dear friend, his head pillowed on a large book. I walked over and blew out the dying candle. Will's hand was stuck in another large book. I pulled it free and closed Hollinshed's Chronicle of English, English History. Wishing not to wake him, I stroked his head and walked away. I was about to leave the house through the kitchen when I was stopped by Lady Montague's butler in his nightshirt. Her ladyship was insistent you receive this, he said, handing me a folded piece of paper. I opened it. A letter of introduction from Lady Montague, stating that I was conducting her private business and that she enjoyed the favour of Her Majesty the Queen, complete with seal. I was a little astonished. Her ladyship trusts you to use this wisely, only in extreme circumstances, and above all, you must guard it carefully. Thank your ladyship. I am at her disposal any time, I replied. Her butler bowed by way of acknowledgement and shuffled back down the passage. <laughs> Have I got time? One more? One more? 74. 74. I like this. I like doing this. I do this all day. Um, they're in there kind of... Uh, da -da -da -da. They're about 11, 12 now. I stopped and watched them laugh their way up the street. Further along, two of the boys threw momentary glances at me as if Will was saying unkind words about me. I stood and watched them walk into the distance their receding vision replaced by a thousand ants scurrying and tingling over my heart. I walked slowly back to the livery. My feet could fairly feel the, hardly feel the road beneath. Even the horse limped with my heartfelt pain. Whilst tying up the horse, father came over. All good, son? Yes, father. Father looked the horse up and down and then picked up a hoof and flicked out a stone. Not noticed he had a stone, he asked. He looked at me. He could see red in my eyes, which we often had from hay and tiredness, but he knew this was from welling tears. No, father, sorry. The all right, son? Father, when something hurts you deep inside, what do you do? He took my chin with his finger and though as rough as an old hoof rasp, it was gentle. If you are rich and educated, you take time. Let tears flow and maybe write a poem about it. Then he turned my chin towards the yard. But if you are poor and uneducated, you put a cold poultice on it and get on. Time of the poor is owned by others. I nodded. What gives, son? He vaguely inquired. I just sniffed and wiped my nose. I have to get on, Father. January went to February and the days turned from chilly to cold as a dead mare's lips. I would try to busy myself cleaning tack for no other reason than being close to the warmth of the smithy fire. It was late one evening when I had been cleaning tack since midday. I thought I was done, but my father asked apologetically, if I could do two bridles and saddles for the Dean of St. Mary's visitors. I knew Father would be taken up grooming the beasts, so it's not as if he was putting on me. I'd done the saddles and by candlelight was myopically cleaning the intricate brass work of the bridles. They were classy pieces of work and must have cost a pretty penny. I was just about finished when a familiar voice floated across the room. Hello, Tom, said a voice, a touch awkwardly. I looked up and in the flickering light I saw my friend leaning casually on one of the saddles. 
Despite being wary of him, I noticed he looked freshly handsome. It was a new will. In the glow, he looked as if he were posing for a great portrait to adorn the wall of a great house. His hair was cut in a different dash. He had grown quite a bit and had some fine clothes. I, on the other hand, was covered in grime of leather oil and brass polish, looking the picture of a ragamuffin, as his friends had so kindly put it. I said nothing. Placing down the bridle, I grabbed the cloth and started to wipe my hands. Will did not wait, and taking me quite by surprise, grabbed me with an all-enveloping bear hug. Mayus frater in lactata, he whispered. Been a while, friend, I replied. I almost became overcome with emotion, but I held it back. I sat down at the stack of sacks. Will grabbed an old stool, and sitting down, he looked me in the eye and grinned. How's school, I asked, by way of trying to break the ice. Good, my friend, good, he said, and started to look at the floor. What's up, Will? I asked. I've been a cur, Tom, a canker-ridden cur, he admitted and looked up. Nah, not to me, I said, and forced a smile. Last month in Rother Street, he admitted. So what, I said, feebly hiding my pain. I heard you call me and cast you aside, the act of a cur, said Will, apologetically. You've come to see me now. That's not the act of a cur. Thanks very much. I hope you enjoy that. Thanks very much. Thank you, Dominic. Okay. Our next writer needs no introduction. It's Zelda Riando, the organiser of this event. This Stuart. It's, she's the author of Capo Scripti and A Fistful of Cherries and is working on a third book, Good Morning, Mr. Magpie. She lives in Brixton and is the organiser of this event. Please welcome to the stage, Zelda Riando. the next chapter of Magpies, but it's Dave's birthday, and he wants me to read Capscripti to him, so here it goes. Uh, just for people that haven't come across this book, it's about a photographer who's trying to reconstruct the original language, which he does by shrinking people's heads, recording their last utterances, so he tortures them to death. So here we go, a bit dark. Head shrinking, two. The photographer's kitchen was one of the smallest rooms in the apartment, more reminiscent of a laboratory or a surgery than a place for the preparation of food. It was inhumanly clean and glittering, with surfaces and cupboards sheathed in antiseptic stainless steel. Along one wall, he had installed a giant aga some years before, modified according to his own specifications. Along the other was an unusually long drainer with deep, round sinks set flush in the metal. Hidden away behind the immaculate surface, in a myriad of drawers and cupboards, was the accumulation of several years of research, minutely organized and tucked away, catalogued and sorted, so that the, if you opened one of the cupboards, you would find racks of glass tubes, and jars filled with mysterious substances, rather than the expected ketchup, tin soup, and tea. This drawer contained rare substances procured from his South American and Caribbean agents. This, a selection of knives and scalpels, forceps, and catgut. That one notes, and in yet another, hanks of hair, desiccated skin layered like tissue paper, with sheaves of intricately drawn designs for tattoos. The refrigerator would not, at first glance, give you any clues as to the purpose to which he sometimes put it. Its usual contents, a bottle of wine, a few camera films, the ine inevitable gentleman's relish, relic of some ancient hamper. The sole clue, perhaps, is the lack of a central shelf leaving enough room to store a polythene-wrapped head in each of its stages of preparation. The photographer was halfway through the process that would reduce the head to the size of an orange and provide him with another fine piece to add to his collection. Naked of hair and minutely inscribed with characters, 
It rested on the stainless steel worktop in readiness for the next stage. On the Aga was a large pot that had been filled with water and simmered for hours with roots and dried plants until it had reduced to a watery paste. The latest subject had proved problematic and provided little for the photographer to work from. He had starved himself rather than eat the food prepared, food that had been mixed with drugs designed to intensify the effect of the dark padded chamber of 24-hour-a-day silence and isolation, of timeless incarceration. He had proved resistant to all these methods, the relationship stillborn, holding his secrets inside. Perhaps it had been a mistake to take him, but it was too late to go back now. There'd never been any question of his release. For 28 days, they had carried on an invisible battle, and finally, the photographer had won, had heard on his tapes the pleas for release, gradually giving way to an endless mumbling, a litany of life whose vocabulary had become diffused until nothing but a long susurration had issued from the spinning reels. When he opened the door, he had found only Gerard's emaciated corpse, his feather-like form, the smell of fear and feces. In some essential way, he'd escaped, had stolen away, and left the photographer no closer to the solution. Still, they all went in the end, and perhaps even Gerard, who'd clung so hard to the lie, had something to add to the pattern. The photographer smiled with grim satisfaction at the thought that if nothing else, he would contribute his energy to the apartment. Flesh to kilowatts, body becoming a shape in ashes in the hot coals of the Aga. Dust to dust, dirt we are, and to dirt we will return. The body is nothing, the mind is the temple of the self. His head will hold all that there is of him, all there already, his life, his knowledge, just waiting for my needles to bring it out. Done now. He's fed enough now to the hungry Aga to keep the temperature constant for a few hours under the giant cauldron that had once been used for boiling puddings. A visit to one of the catering shops in the Edgware Road, armed with a set of precise instructions, had furnished his cooker with the necessary modifications. The Aga equipped with a large, deep hot plate which he uses to heat black sand whilst the head is simmering on the other ring. Flesh falling from the bone, tender as a well-broiled ham. The photographer lays sabatier knives, medical scalpels and long pins ready on the sideboard. Rolls of absorbent cotton and lint are precisely lined in front of him, behind a tripod that's been modified so he can use it to support a head. All is ready now. Right tools for the job. Ritual observed, but modernized, and why not? Is this not, after all, the 21st century? He had a feeling the old man would have approved. Well, possibly. Deftly, he lifts the head out of the pot with a set of long, shining tongs and stands it on the tripod. His critical eye notes that it has survived the first stage of the process remarkably well. Surgeon's gloves and surgeon's grace. The neat incision from crown to nape. The scalp rolls back easy as the skin on a Sunday joint. He lays it out on the pile of sand, which moulds to the shape of the face and supports it, whilst he deftly trims the fat, raises the attachments to the bones. Gently now for the bridge of the nose. Fingers trace eye sockets and the sharp blade follows them almost lovingly, teasing, pinching, rolling, rubbing the recalcitrant flesh. Quickly now, before it cools too much, the skull comes away clean and blanched. Stack it on the shelf with the others. He'll deal with that later. Trim the neck, remove the flesh inside with a sharp scraper, preferably with rounded edges. Remove the fatty excess, the slight jowls. Smooth and cauterize slightly with a hot stone. 
he imagines describing this process. What had the old man felt the first time he watched it? The black sand packs in smoothly hot and dry, molding to every hollow. Searchers prepared. Butterfly stitches hold the flaps together, quick tacking ready for the neat seam. Lovely bit of needlework there. Practice makes perfect. Standing back, he admires his handiwork, but only for a moment. Turning and smoothing the hot skin, flat stones heated on the back shelf of the aga. From here on, he's entirely faithful to the ritual. Even if the stones are from the beach at Brighton rather than some Amazonian riverbed, they're suitably smooth and rounded. Soft pads of cotton absorb the sebum leaking from the shrinking pores. Lips sewn shut. Fine needles hold eyes and brows and nose in shape. Redundant acupuncture. There's a symbol to symbolism to where they're placed. He's done some research on chakras, was struck by the parallels between these ancient cultures. The first batch of sand has already cooled, compacted and cemented slightly with the fatty juices that it's absorbed. Gently, he scoops it from the shell, delicate and flexible as a deflated balloon. The head has already become somewhat smaller, but retains its shape. It's going well so far. He gathers up more hot sand and pours it through the neck hole. The rhythmic motion of hot stones smoothing the planes of the face, sculpting the death mask, the shibboleth. The tattoos become a black tracery of etching on the dark skin, taking a shine like mahogany, upon which rich, rich beads of grease appear as the head desiccates and are wiped away. The photographer has great faith in processes, carrying out the most intricate plans step by step, performing each necessary element with care and attention. The pleasure of watching as all the elements come together to form the perfect pattern. Ideally, he would like to control everything, pinpoint everything in existence with omniscient accuracy, fix it in its place in a divine order. From this perspective, every situation becomes a weighing of the odds, a balancing of all parameters, a Euclidean curve of potential and possibility. In the journals, in the explorer's meticulous recording of the Kappa Scripti's practices and beliefs, he can sense a kindred spirit. What are the tattoos, if not graphs, mapping the individual's journey from birth to death? Forking lines suggesting avenues of possibility to be explored. Playing with life and playing with patterns. Language, logos, the word, creates and destroys. Say something and make it so. The grand author, the architect. What was there for God to fear in the Tower of Babel? And so he measures and marks describes and makes so, weighs the odds and continues his grim business, each addition to his gallery, a strategic pruning of the messy tree of life. Within the photographer's plans, there's no room for devi deviation because if the word is fact, is a making, it is also logic, the hard truth of the percentage. And how can it be that the Kappa Scripti, with their thorns and buried juice, drugged visions and wandering descriptions of the moon, the stars whose children gallop across the sky, can have grasped so complex a pattern? Thank you very much, Zelda. Okay, I'm going to uh, read you a monologue. Um, I kind of have to sort of uh, say that I looked around for this this evening and I couldn't find a printed version, so this is the original, unedited, long-written version. So, here we go. I'm sat 
in a wet nappy, sat here with sore thighs in a soaking wet nappy in a buggy, and I'm screaming. I'm crying, I'm sobbing, and then I'm screaming again. I met my aunties in the corridor, left in the corridor, parked with the trolley, as if me and the trolley were just one thing, as if I have wheels, and holding me in the trolley is a safety harness clearly not designed for my protection, more to stop me from escaping my trolley and screaming directly at the adults who seem fit to leave me here. My auntie and my mum were talking about something, and it must be something really important because they're managing to ignore the awful noise that I'm making and drink tea and eat cake and gossip when all of a sudden my aunt decides to make a token effort to shut me up. One thing's for sure, I'm not going to get my nappy changed and I'm not going to eat any cake. She reaches inside a handbag and I can hear this sound, a sort of tinkling bell sound and then gold and silver shining and sparkling in the dull corridor. It's like magic. She's shaking a bunch of keys, shaking them and asking me what it is. What is it? I don't fucking know. I like it, whatever it is. I like the sound. It seems to make me forget about the red soreness when my thighs touch my shorts. And she shakes them again. Jingle jangle, jingle jangle, right in front of my face. And like magic, I shut up. And now I've got them in my hand and I'm turning them over and looking at them and I'm amazed. And this feeling, this calm, reassuring sound of keys, it's with me for the rest of my life. It never leaves me. It's a keeper. Now I'm out of my trolley for good, and I'm getting bigger, fast, running in and out of the porch at my mum and dad's, and fastened to the wall in front of me is a giant brass key, and on the end it has the number 21. And on the side it has the words that say, key to the house. Well, it's obviously not the key to this fucking house. Apart from being far too big, we don't need a key for our house, because back door's always open. We ain't got nothing worth picking. We're not latchkey kids, because they can't afford to get the keys cut. And mum and dad say we can leave the doors open because we've got good neighbours and everybody watches out for each other here. But we haven't got anywhere flicking, so any spare cash is turned into fags and booze long before any keys are cut. I don't have to be 21. As it turns out, it's irrelevant. Because I'm out of here at 17. I've got my own place, my own keys. I'm a machinist, 37 quid a week, and less than a fiver goes on rent. I've got a one-bedroom flat, in the worst area, but it's mine, and the keys are mine. Number six, and sometimes I'm so pissed, I can't get the key in the door. Sometimes I can't even see the lock. But that moment of calm, that feeling of relief, when I reach inside my pocket and pull out my keys, it's still there, still sacred. Manners open more doors than keys, my old mum says, but she's never tried to get into my place at three in the morning. Of course, in some ways, you might... No, be nice to people. She's sort of right, you know. Saying please and thank you can get you a long way in this life as long as you're surrounded by people who appreciate it. That is, otherwise you just get walked all over by people who think they have the right to do whatever they want. I'm counting keys now. Door keys, car keys, locker keys. I've learned to keep them all together. It's, like it's harder to lose that way when you keep them all together. Sorry about this. I do lose them. I lose them, but find it easy to find too. Bloody big bunch of them. I need one of them chains like a jailer, you know, them you see people have attached to the belt. Might as well get a nose ring and attach them to that. I've got keys to the pub, keys to the restaurant, I'm doing all right. Keys to the club, keys to the garage, full metal laminate. I've got a big sore on my thigh where they rub, which brings back some kind of weird memories. So I'm out raving now, all eat up pissed up dancing and there's this girl and she's dancing at the bar and she's got a kilt on and at the top of a kilt she's got tiny little handcuffs and I'm imagining being helpless because she's handcuffed my big toes together and how impossible it would be to escape if your big toes were handcuffed and I'm telling her this and she's laughing and we're dancing and laughing and we're on the way back to her house and I'm thinking this is it we're gonna fuck and we're outside the door and she reaches inside her handbag for the door key not there no keys anyway, she's lost the key, the keys to the kingdom, gone. I'm absolutely crestfallen, desperate man. Like a desperate man, I'm reaching inside my pocket. Got to do something, I reach and I get my key. And I'm pushing it in her lock and it goes in and I turn it. And would you fucking believe it? It opens the door, open sesame. My key fits her door. It's meant to be. My toes are in for a treat tonight. 
I mean, after the divorce, well, no keys. No keys at all. She got the keys. I got the records. I had a good lawyer, you see. When you've got no keys, well, it's kind of weird. It's like being adrift in an open boat. No real direction. You're at the mercy of the wind and the weather. I have to make arrangements, you know what I mean? Like a, like a phone call. Uh, is it all right to doss on your sofa tonight? Uh, can you leave the key under the mat? Feels pathetic, but sort of liberating. It seems like it's all been a big process. A kind of locking and unlocking. You know, music comes in keys too. Maybe if you can find the key that's right for you, the one you're supposed to be singing, then maybe that's the most important key because it's what happens inside your heart that really matters. The gears mesh and turn. The tumbler tumbles. Everything lines right up inside my chest and a spring clicks and then the doors open and I'm home. All of a sudden, I'm home. Please remember, all the writers tonight have got books for sale in the corner. Visit the bookshop in the corner. I'd like to pick up Brixton Cycles, if anybody knows anything about their predicament at the moment, but they're looking for crowdfunding. So uh, be aware they have been evicted. They're a long-standing thing in Brixton and done everybody a lot of service. So please try and support them if you can. And the next book jam is the first Sunday in December. Monday. First Monday in December. <laughs>